0: With the rise of the internet came declarations from so many corners of the earth that the availability of information would change our world forever. And while some information has become available, and life has certainly changed as a result, there is also a growing acknowledgement that putting information out there is not the end of the story. It turns out how you use information, and what kind of data it is, also matters when it comes to people noticing or understanding what it all means. Not long ago we talked about the role of government data, but today we move into another huge area long protected by those deemed experts or worthy. I'm talking about cultural institutions, museums, libraries, vast collections of things that make up our planet and our lives. Forget what you know about the traditional museum and that library visitation as it used to be. This is about the interested and innovative individuals having a chance to use data legally and create with it. And for many, it all begins in Berlin at an event called Coding Da Vinci, where cultural institutions meet the creative public and say, to put it in simple terms, here's what we've got to offer, what can you make out of it? Today on the program, we're exploring this new paradigm of cultural institutions and talking with everyone involved. It's coding Da Vinci, and the world may never be the same again. From Wikimedia Deutschland, I'm Marc Fonseca Rendeiro, and this is Source Code Berlin. To get a feel from Coding Da Vinci, I spent two days observing and talking with participants and organizers. Now, in the first half of today's program, you'll hear from digital artist Kati Hilpe, museum curators Mareike Hirschfeld of the Natural History Museum of Berlin, and Miriam Wenzel of the Jewish Museum of Berlin, and last but not least, Andreas Kahl, a software developer and librarian from Munich. In the second half of today's program, you'll hear a roundtable with the event's four main organizers, a cascade of voices to help bring this event to life in the form of a podcast, starting right now with the returning champion of Coding Da Vinci, interactive designer, Kati Hilpa.
1: Uh, when I was working at the Media Lab Helsinki, I had a colleague called Sanna Martila, who is a very good friend of mine also. And she's uh, already for many years promoted open content in Finland. And she was among the first uh, people to start Creative Commons Finland. And you now she has Open OpenClam Finland. Uh, she's really uh, passionate about open content and uh, making cultural heritage more accessible and create, uh, coming up with creative uses for it. So uh, we worked uh, as colleagues for five years. So we did together, for instance, workshops where people could uh, remix uh, videos that are openly licensed and these sorts of things. So I was uh, more uh, in the role of a workshop facilitator and, and finding interviewing some people who could use content. Creative ways, but then through that you sort of go into yourself. Hey, I also want to make something. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah. so there was a sort of desire to create.
1: Yeah, so it was not. uh, It was a longer path for me to become a full-time freelancer who makes what I want, (laughs) sort of. (laughs) But I'm very, very happy about it. I'm also very happy about the past experiences that I got to know the people at the media lab and um, there I also saw sort of this um, that there was not so much uh, physical objects created with this open content uh, in a way it was a lot about apps and Mm -hmm. so on in the beginning and more programming related and well I simply didn't have that skill also so I sort of just began with the skills that I have which was more uh, on. Hands-on on things, on. and <laughs> I've been uh, following the German scene, let's say, <laughs> the last few years, two years. I've been here, and uh, more this, uh, indeed, this coding Da Vinci type of open uh, culture yeah. uh, activity. And uh, yeah, I think there there is there is a lot of interesting uh, institutions who could provide. Uh, all sorts of historical data, or about design, or, or science. There is a lot of, German culture also that yeah. is very interesting to to dive into those archives. I think I think the the digital uh, digitality or the that it is uh, available via internet is is very good for distribution and exploring the the vast uh, amount of material. Yeah. So, so it's really great that there is so many data sets. So it, it was kind of perfect timing that this event, uh, the, according to Vinci was taking place. I thought, oh, great. I can just go there and I can make some projects. And when I looked at the data sets uh, beforehand already. I I got immediately attached to these uh, insect box scans from the Museum für Natukunde. I just somehow love creatures. I do also a little bit of illustration and I'm really into all kinds of creatures and these uh, amazing beetles and other insects that were really high resolution. I had uh, learned to, a little bit of... Uh, this arduino programming Mm -hmm. the past few years which is a popular microcontroller that people use for making diy electronics projects so i had uh, just before the hackathon i had learned a little bit how to program uh, rc servos so little motors that can move certain uh, distance and um so I I sort of started to imagine from this beetle becoming alive because they looked very science fiction like to me when you know if you see a beetle walking on the grass it, you don't see all the details it's mm-hmm. just a little beetle but once you see it really in in these scans which were like 20,000 pixels wide and you can really zoom in uh, it it becomes really a, a different <laughs> experience to see all those very sci-fi-like yeah. <laughs> structures. A futuristic animal from another planet. Uh, yeah. A really beautiful... Uh, yeah. Yeah, then I just started uh, during this first weekend, like this, what we're having now. Uh, I just started prototyping. Um, so I had already legs in place, so I could make a sort of simple walking thing. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure what, because I had really not been that much in hackathons. I didn't know what will happen. I just bought all my electronics and tools and I was sitting on the table and getting a bit know people and... I was still a bit uh, kind of insecure about my idea. I thought, is this a ridiculous idea to make a robotic beetle? Because <laughs> I've never even made a robot. But then it, it really played a significant role that people were so enthusiastic and encouraging that they, you know, you we had to put a little sign on the table, what's the name of your project? And I just wrote Cyber Beetle there. And suddenly there comes people like, oh, is this the Cyber Beetle project? <laughs> cool, I like it. I really like it. <laughs> So, at that point, it's only legs. I mean, at that people... point, it's only legs and a very vague idea. And uh, I think if, if there was not such a positive reception and the community around you, yeah. I don't know if I would have pulled this project off. I think it really, uh, Why I like, I also give DIY workshops with Niklas and I, I really like workshop atmosphere or such a hackathon atmosphere where you come to make something together because you can really give each other some sort of positive energy that hey let's do something nice (laughs) oh there were many ideas Uh, I I think the ideas kept changing like they usually do so on one hand there are technical limitations and my skills uh, how much can I do and Also, okay, what will work and what will not? So I was prototyping quite a bit. I thought at first it could somehow react to sound or, or something like that, but uh, it was not so easy to implement um, and then uh, then through different chains of thoughts uh, suddenly I thought ah yeah well maybe it can have a music video and it can dance Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know exactly how I ended up to that thought but I I think it's very nice to when you work with the material that's what I like to also probably the same for programmers but for them the material is the code but for me the working with the physical material that always gives you a lot of new ideas so uh, do a lot of prototyping and trying different things and then comes new ideas. So there is never a ready idea that's just implemented, but the important part happens in between.
2: When I'm introducing our museum, I say, well, we are kind of a research institute. Mareike
0: Hirschfeld, Natural History Museum um, of Berlin.
2: So the collections are kind of the angle of all the different uh, questions, also to our current research. So like a stone which was, I don't know, collected in the 70s might be still important when Describing the Earth's history of that particular place,
0: mm.
2: and the same is for um animals and plants as well um but of course, all those were s- covered in the collections in the specific rooms with climate and not available for the broader public um uh, but now due to this kind of whole digitization processes, we do have images of a lot of specimens, so which are, um, stored in the collection. And we can use them. We can send them to our partners, to other researchers, if they're really interested in those specimens. Because if you're sending a specimen to the US, for example, a beetle, um, They are highly fragile, so you can lose some legs if you send them. Um, So, of course, it would be better to send in a highly qualitative image and then they can check out if they're really interested in that beetle or it can stay in Berlin. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the main importance of these images we do have from our collection items. But now there we have these images And we can bring them really easily to a broader public because formerly they were kind of hiding behind these walls in the museum collection, the specimen, but now we do have these images and why should we keep them? (laughs) So we can bring them to the broader public and see what they can do with it. It's a kind of educational thingy, but also like we have seen in the last year with the cyber beetle, you can just make art out of it. And I would have never thought about those cyber beetle thingy when i'm I'm walking through the beetle collection for example
1: Mm -hmm. there is two states of the beetle
0: katie Hilpa.
1: so in a normal state i can do the normal state here so you can hear a little bit background
0: the the beetle is here on the table it's um i don't know it's about it's a little bigger than well two hands (laughs) and um yeah let's listen
1: so here we go. So this is the normal state of the business. so it's uh, quite grumpy and very slow. So it's, I believe in, in real life these Kalkosoma uh, atlas beetles um, are also not <laughs> extremely fast, <laughs> but I was watching some videos at least that they are kind of staying still or moving slowly. Um, so... Um, in this state, it's just making a little bit sound and moving. And then it has, uh, it has its own wooden mm-hmm. insect
0: box. Mm-hmm. Like any good museum piece.
1: Yeah, it's needed a housing, of course, and uh, like the ones in the museum. And uh, when you turn the box around, there are little doors. I can open them. Here we're turning the box around. Opening doors. There is a little... Um, TV um, high-tech um, flat-screen system mm-hmm. made out of a digital photo frame, and um, then the beetle reacts when this TV is turned on. There is a little uh, infrared LEDs, and the beetle has an infrared LEDs uh, infrared sensor in the front. Now, unfortunately, the sound, mm-hmm. the the speaker battery is silent, so. This would have been perfect, of course, for a podcast to have sound, <laughs> but now we have to live without it, because I...
0: So... I how it works. Good. So, it's so on the screen we see the images of two beetles and, well, <laughs> now butterflies. And the our own cyber beetle is... Reacting?
1: Yes. Let's see. I think it now it's happier. Direct. So it has the, the infrared uh, communication with its TV system, and uh, it becomes immediately happier and makes dancing moves when the music video is on. Yeah, it's
0: really cheery now. <laughs> it's a very kind of unhappy beetle earlier. Now, even its little LED lights, uh, eyes are kind of bright and happy and, yeah.
2: Of course you can kind of open up your data to a new audience, not really the museum visitors, but maybe also other
0: people. Marijke Hirschfeld.
2: see the beetle in a other context. I mean, ah, there's a beetle, maybe I could check the Natural History Museum as well, but this can be a side effect, but it's not necessarily the case. I think we are kind of, I don't know if we have this kind of tunnel view on our data because we are so into the science and we just see the, the specimen and yeah that's a bird or that's a frog, whatever. Yeah. And we do not see the chance we can get if we give it to a developer or somebody yeah. else, a programmer.
1: Good to mention that the, the music video is made also of the insect box scan pictures. And it's, it's just a video basically that loops. Then there are uh, pictures from the Botanical Garden that is a data set that's uh, still available for use. Yeah. So there are plant pictures and then there's also pictures of electronic components that I've just scanned. And uh, the song was made by my brother who helped me with this project so we did it uh, together uh, he makes he's a sound designer he makes music so he made from animal sounds so it sounds like electronic music but it's actually made of elec- uh, the tierstimen um, archive is the natural history museums uh, of
0: animal sounds
1: animal sound yes. archive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: The funniest or the best thing like on this event is if somebody from a history museum now, so a developer takes data from the history museum plus from the natural history museum and just put them together. So kind of this merging of stuff. And this is, I think, only available at those events. So I won't say that it's a competition. It's it's more a chance, so yeah, it even improves it that so many different institutions um, come here together.
3: Um, it, it was a contact to uh, a colleague of mine at the Freie University of Berlin. And uh, he was interested to working with the data set, and um, then he uh, said, yeah... Could this is Andreas Kahl, a software developer and librarian working at the Bavarian State Library. Uh, we, we thought about that last year, but we couldn't do it. And this time, we take the chance... Um, the dataset itself is is about uh, bibliographic data, it's linked library data. Mm. Um, it mainly contains uh, titles, creators, contributors to books. It also contains identifiers like ISBNs or WorldCat or CLC numbers. Um, it contains very many links to um, authority data from the German National Library for example mm-hmm. and it also contains uh, holdings data so you can query in it which library has a certain title. Okay. So about the volume it's 26 million titles and about 60 million um, holdings. Um, i'm yeah i'm 'm really delighted it's it's uh, I got very many ideas i i think i I got a better idea what's the value of the data set hmm. from uh, from a more outside perspective and um there was one guy who who decided he will try to use this data in a book recommendation engine yeah. and um if that will work um I will be really happy hmm. and um other options are linking our own data with uh, other data sets like Wikidata, and uh, that's something we could perhaps engage in ourselves. When I came here, I, I knew about the bibliographic value of the data set, but I think I have too little ideas about uh, what to do with it outside of the library, mm-hmm. and now I saw there are dozens of data sets um, rather small and very special yeah. and uh, I think our dataset could be one of the data sets that connects all the, these special collections because uh, we have literature and we have um, topics marked in this literature and uh, so you can find connections between different datasets mm-hmm. so together with with things like uh, the authority files or wikidata and this bibliographic data you can connect small collections mm-hmm. and this makes it really interesting i think
1: the idea is often that the, the which a bit uh, formal name but content provider is
0: once again Kati
1: helper who provide different kinds of data or content uh, that they come to the event to tell something about their uh, content or that you can ask questions. And I, I find personally this really a very different experience than if I just browse something online and try to reach via email someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think anyway, when I'm on my computer, there's so much things to browse and look, and it is not focused. Mm-hmm. So this, this kind of event really focuses the attention to just a certain theme. And I really enjoy also asking little bit uh, questions uh, from the provider. Uh, they, I just talked here with the person who is um, who was presenting those rolls from Deutsches Museum, those um, piano, sort of automatic piano yeah. punch card like yeah. rolls and scans.
0: Player pianos,
1: I think. Yeah, so this was super interesting to, to have the chance to talk with someone, even if it's just like five minutes or something. Mm-hmm. To hear the stories, because uh, the people are really the expert of the content and know a lot about historical things or all the details. Same with the Museum von Naturkunde. I really liked talking about the content because it gives a different perspective than if I just see the image. Of course, the, the image evokes... Imagination, but I really li- I like to also keep the sort of if I would make something imaginative out of it, I like to keep also the let's say real historical context. I'm really a, I am a herpetologist, so I'm interested in
2: frog research, mostly in Africa. marika Hirschfeld. It was more or less two years ago that there was this open position at our house and I was looking for a new kind of job or whatever, but also to be a bit more open-minded, not into this frog research. But yeah, there's so much else to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And this was in this Open Up project I just introduced that um, we mobilized natural history content with the platform Europeana. And this was, for me, the first contact with this kind of people and um, cultural heritage so merging natural history with all those other things Uh, and then I was working for another project we developed some pilots so from different topics natural history history education um, and in the end having some apps and now it's kind of moving from a job perspective not really a hobby but it's kind of this plus word because there are so many nice people you meet Mm -hmm. at this kind of events who are all interested in opening up their data opening up information and yeah it's it's so nice and seeing people who are really interested in those data it's not that you're just a scientist I'm working on my data but then you're just opening up and developers coming so ah I could do this and that and of course that's fantastic
3: Eve.
4: Oh, oh, my God, Eve.
1: Just, well, here we have quite a variety of different file formats available also, which is nice, because there are probably a lot of people with different interests. I mean, I am not using my self or XML files, really, because... Um, uh, I'm I'm more into this tangible, building tangible things. But um, I think it's very valuable to have those different formats and uh, resolution is always an issue with images. Mm-hmm. So both the Rijksmuseum image that is in the forbidden fruit machine and the scans in the uh, beetle, they are high resolution. So this leaves much more room, because sometimes you don't use the whole picture, but you might use a part of a picture also. So so I think the higher the resolution, the better you can use.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Like you can animate parts of a picture or something like that.
5: We, we really need to sort of reframe um, the data in relation to our audience. This is Miriam Wenzel of the Jewish Museum of Berlin. Step. The first step is publishing the data, um, Getting it right, the metadata right, getting the description, publish it, think about licenses that 's mm-hmm. the first step, mm-hmm. but what comes then is really interesting. What are we doing with it yeah. um, and that 's the whole question of like um, um, interpreting, um, mm-hmm. coming up with like um, digital stories, um, developing formats. Um, Distributed not only on, on known portals but also to like new audiences. Mm-hmm. And where are they? Yeah. And in order to develop ideas, um, I think it's really important to meet. Yeah. And and um, and this is a place where you meet. You know, you you don't necessarily meet your online audience. Mm-hmm. You, no. <laughs> And, uh, but I think it's important to do, and, um, and, and as I said, I think it's important to sort of reshape um, the question of what is interesting in what we have. We decided to present um, data that we could publish on Wikimedia Commons. So, because uh, German um, um, law is really restrictive Uh, um, um, when it comes to question of uh, copyright, copyright law, personality laws, all this. So we decided sort of to be on the safe side and we presented um, a set of data from our fine arts department, which we can publish under Creative Commons as creative commons. And so the data is a set of its drawings by Hermann Struck. Hermann Struck was, was an artist, a Jewish artist um, end of 19th, beginning of 20th century um, was pretty influential, especially in drawing. He taught, for instance, to Chagall, he taught mm-hmm. the drawings and um, and what he did was he was sort of an ethnographic drawer. So uh, so he was drawing when he, when, when he was traveling. Uh, uh, he was drawing his experiences he had during the First World War. He was drawing his first encounters with uh, so-called Eastern Jewelry. Mm-hmm. And he was also, and that was I think a special part of our data set is that he did a sort of an ethnographic um, um, journey in the um, war prisoners camp. And he was drawing war prisoners um, or making portraits, Mm. and his idea was that when you are drawing, you can a bit draw what is typical about a person, and even more typical than when you photograph it. Mm. You know, it's a bit this like, fetched thing, caricaturistic approach, and um, so that was that's what he actually did. It's like ethnographic study in prisoners of war that at that time came from all over the world so it was like his first encounter with like black people and chinese people and and all that was in these camps and um and he drew them and this is well this is what we, what we were presenting
3: I think that's one of the biggest values of, of this event: that that people meet other people and, and can exchange ideas and 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 the, and the ability to work on on things. Yeah. So um, I would really encourage to go on with this and do it next year and the uh, year afterwards.
2: I think it's a way of thinking which changes because I think two years ago I wasn't even aware of a Creative Commons license and what this uh, means for an image or if right. there's just this copy C or whatever and now it's yeah, come, coming part of the daily life and you see it a bit differently
1: be helpful also if there's more such events or dialogue between the makers and institutions to understand a bit the needs or hey give good feedback also that hey, you provided these really nice pictures. I think this is awesome, so I think in over time maybe with the proper dialogue there there can be more of a community where where people with different backgrounds work together yeah. it's not only in events but maybe in in broader sense
5: and i felt like i mean coming from from quite a big institution i felt like um um it's our duty to be like really open to all kind of approaches so whatever whatever somebody comes up with an idea we are we um we are appreciating it
0: You've just heard the experience and viewpoints of a few individuals on the museum side of things as well as on the creative side of Coding Da Vinci. Now let's try something different. This second half of the podcast will be a roundtable discussion with four key people behind this event. Barbara Fischer of Wikimedia Deutschland Helen Hahn of the Open Knowledge Foundation Deutschland, Beata Rush of the Service Center for Digitization Berlin, and Stefan Bartholme of the German Digital Library. Together, we set out to look at the larger issues behind museum data and the growing interest of opening up to creative ideas from the general public. Was there, is there a strong tradition in Germany among cultural institutions of protecting data, of making it or copywriting it and and, and not releasing it? I'm Stefan from the
6: German Digital Library. And yeah, there is some hesitation because there's a strong sense of, of, are, yeah belonging not, not in the sense of property but they have cared for it so long they are responsible that we have these great artifacts from the uh, last centuries and they've done a pretty great job keeping yeah. it but there's a saying, as teachers say, school could be so great if there weren't all these pupils. Um, some people say in museums, oh, what for what, what, what a great place it would be if there weren't all those visitors. <laughs> no, that's not true. But, you know, in Germany, there are often also researchers and they have uh, yeah, scientific ideas about it and and. Um, and some of the, the, the institutions are really offices of, of the state, for instance, the monument agencies. And when I talked to them, they said, oh, no, you know, we are a proper German office. We can't work together with hackers. But that's that's changing. And, and today was the best example. And I think Beate does a lot of, of day-to-day business with this institution and can shine some more light on it.
7: Um, I would say, so I'm working for a service center for helping cultural institutions to digitize their stuff. And we are not digitizing ourselves, but we are giving support, advice, and doing kind of project organizations. And I would say, um, what Stefan says is true, but the museums are opening up. But what is really, really a problem, and that's not just in Germany. That is the the problem of the 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 whole legal issues. So they would give us data. So I know of Mm. at least five institutions who would willing, who would be so happy to be part of coding coding Da Vinci, but the legal situation is quite complicated. Just to um, to clear the legal issues, and then they cleared the legal issues and found out that also the photos, which the the photos, uh, or the whole whole legal stuff with all the photos, is quite complicated. So I, I would say the attitude of the museums is one, po- it is the one perspective, but the legal perspective is not always on our side.
0: And, and, so, and so we have, very well said, uh, but we have evidence that the attitude is changing. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, which I could probably try to speculate has to do with outreach, a little bit of outreach, also a bit of um, experience, I guess, positive experiences. But the, the, And the legal situation? <laughs> this
4: is actually what, what, we, what we would like to provide, this yeah. positive experience. And uh, the legal situation Is changing slowly, Mm -hmm. very slowly, but we feel that it might change faster if we uh, give more evidence that it is worthwhile changing it. Uh, People don't lose income. They don't lose control on their, their collections. Um, They could still um, be visible and attributed to their collections. Uh, if, if we manage to prove evidence for all these trends, then, um, the legal procedure would be changing as well. I'm very convinced about that.
8: You know, I think, um, if you, if you look abroad, then you have so many projects and so much stuff going on with cultural heritage institutions, digitizing their collections, um, working together with different institutions, um, scientists, hackers, you know, and here in Germany, it, just simply took a while, you know. So every time when we had a last year, for example, every time when we talked to institutions or cultural heritage institutions, um, we could only mention projects, um, that were built abroad and that was really, you know, um, yeah, it, yeah some kind of, you know, it was not, it was not really working so well. So, um, we had to convince more and this year we could actually show great projects. They've been uh, who, um, um, if we, we could show really great projects that were built by the teams together with the institution here in Germany who could, you know, take the few steps to open up and who could uh, open up the data, small data sets, bigger data sets, um, different topics. And um, we are really pleased, you know, to have these projects, to show them and to tell more about these projects.
0: Let me ask a little bit about how it all works, although I experienced it, but for the people at home listening. Um, Now, we mentioned hackathon. There's some nature behind this related to the hackathon from that tradition. But a hackathon in itself is just, uh, not to summarize it too briefly, but is just people working, seeing what they produce. You seem to have added another element here. And I I wish someone could explain it to me, this whole idea of... um, Many present, so this time around we have thirty institutions presenting and forty-five data sets. But um, some are selected, right? There's a sort of this idea of w- winning in some sense. Am I putting it right? I mean, how does how does that work?
6: Yeah, that's always an element of a hackathon. It's always kind of a competition, a friendly competition. Mm-hmm. You can yeah. call it a yes. hack hack together, but you need some you need some goal. You need some, and it's just for the fun I, I, we don't dole out huge amounts of money but last year we had some great trips to places that mean something to the open data movement mu- mu- movement like the uh, Rijksmuseum in yeah. Amsterdam where we all looking as the holy grail of of uh, great open data work done as in, uh, cultural institutions or the uh, CCC in uh, class uh, communication congress in Hamburg and we're doing something like that this year but uh, <laughs> yeah most likely um I think the, the the greatest change, and that's something Barbara Helena and and came up with, was was that we we prolonged the the de- development period because, um, as Barbara mentioned, there was one attempt in 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 Berlin where somebody um, on a Wednesday evening at six o'clock when the offices closed said let's meet do some kind of hackathon and 20 people were uh, 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 invited and only two showed up. So after that, everybody said, oh, it's been tried before, a cultural data hackathon, it won't work. Mm-hmm. And we, boy, we have we proven them wrong last year. And so, <laughs> and the whole success, I think, was to bring together these two words because we are from the community, Barbara and, and Helena represent, the the, Community, the activists, and Beate and myself—we have to do with the cultural institution, and these two both worlds meet at the cultural uh, at coding Da Vinci, and that takes time to get to know each other, to to speak some sort of same language, get how the other people, uh, other person ticks, and that's something that happens on the first weekend, and usually you 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 drink coffee and and Club Marte and eat pizza until you drop. That and you sleep uh, for three hours and you code and, and then you present something at the end of the weekend. That's not how coding Da Vinci works. So may someone else continue? <laughs> well,
4: actually, um, yeah, it's a big melting pot. I think that the coding Da Vinci is a, is an opportunity to meet, to talk to each other, um, to learn from each other. We we are, we are, do, are not only addressing. Hackers, coders, developers, we do also at, um, address simply people that are interested in art yeah. and, and want them to be here in order to um, give hints and ideas to the hackers. Uh, often we have learned that the culture data is not self-explained, you know. Um, mm. You need like more context to understand it. Like today, we had those um, data from, uh, let's say, the, um, the artwork um, from the 16th century, um, um, print, uh, prints there from the 16th century, and it's m- mainly it's religious uh, motifs. That's nothing that you just have a look at and you understand completely what it's all about. Mm-hmm. It, it might be helpful if you have somebody that gives you an idea to it or has a question on it. Right. Um, so uh, I think this this concept of both having the culture institutions that are able to explain their data, and having the hackers on the other side, and in between intermediates in between, we do have those art affectionate people that um, gives them a hint or or simply come with their questions. That that's the good combination.
7: I think it's also worth mentioning that we have a very broad range of institutions Mm -hmm. and a very, very broad range of data sets. So we do have data um, with an historical impact. We do have insect pictures of insects. Uh, we do have uh, pictures of, of plants and flowers. We have a, um, music
8: instruments.
7: Music instruments. Um, so it's a very, very broad range of, of data sets. Okay. So normally when you think of museums, maybe you think of arts and uh, art, artworks, but this is more, this is about nature, it's about history, it's a lot about history. We do have photos, we do have audio, we do have uh, mm. films, we have a very broad range of... Uh, of, of, of history yeah, from right. the 15th century to today. So, and even and
6: earlier, the, to, to Ice Age, we have rocks, uh, yeah, we uh, have
7: rocks have traveled
6: true. from Sweden to, to, to Berlin. Even if you think about what's, uh, what's in for Berlin uh, in this data, it's great. We have these these uh, uh, Ice Age rocks traveling on the glaciers and uh, resting here. And, and there's something uh, uh, going on with backtracing them and so all this geological data what else about Berlin? I I have six terabytes of, of, of newspaper articles dating from the middle of the 19th century to the Second World War. And it's great, uh, several big Berlin newspapers where you can read about every day and there's full text and
0: yeah, lots we of have, other stuff.
7: We have yeah. wonderful photos from the former West Berlin when still the war was there um, from the student revolution in the 60s. Yeah. So this is also part of, of Berlin what yeah, else do we
4: beautiful artwork. Um, think of all those uh, nice uh, uh, from uh, yeah, the the collection of Raoul Hausmann, um, where we have all this uh, beautiful artwork from the end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th century and um, I mean, there are simply nights nice to look at. I mean, if you only want to do that, you don't want to go deep into intellectual concepts. I mean, just having something nice to look at. You may even turn to the the floral um, um, artwork that this little museum there from Kloppenburg, uh, somewhere in the Bundacks uh, in Niedersachsen, is uh, presenting. I today. I'm
6: from Niedersachsen. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, anyway, uh, they they are coming up with a with a very uh, diverse collection, and the the figure or the the what what is unifying them is that they choose just objects that show flowers in one way or the other. So mm-hmm. it could be flowers on porcelain. It could be flowers on artwork. It could be flowers on photos. It's all about flowers. And uh, mm-hmm. and combine that with these botanical um, um, plants collection from the Botanical Museum. I mean, there is yeah. simply a massive crowd of data available. And I think that's probably the reason why we feel today a bit tired because it has been pretty exhausting to listen to uh, those many different concepts and really being alert all the time and changing from photos from the student revolution in Berlin, switching over to the concepts of of uh, music, uh, music coming from mechanical uh, pianos, uh, turning over to insects that were collected uh, a century ago. I mean, all these different things make me freaking. Um, So (laughs) I wonder how the others feel.
0: And and, uh, the fact that one might be from a large museum or a small museum, I mean, is there a... Is it easier to be here if you're a large museum? You have the resources. I'm always wondering how that that. Affects your
6: participation. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, it's all this metadata dealing and all this digitization stuff. That's that's something that's easier for big institutions, but that's exactly something that Beate does great work about because she enables the the smaller institutions and she makes it possible. And she should talk about it.
0: I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, what it seems also when i when I take think about it in the internet, uh, the grander scheme of the internet, um, we always used to say, you know, all the information is out there right so it 's enough you can just you just have to decide what you want, but I think what we 're learning what we 've been learning for a couple of years now is that just because there 's lots of information out there uh, doesn 't mean anyone finds it. Uh, doesn't mean it's perhaps presented in a in an interesting way. So in, in, in many ways, what you guys are doing, this isn't even not a question, it's a comment. You, you seem to be addressing this internet where, sure, all the information is out there, but you're taking it a step further and you're saying, well, let's think more about what we do with that information, how we present it, because it's not enough anymore. anymore. There was a time where you just put it out and you go... Right.
4: We're not talking any longer about the people that simply want to consume and simply swish through all the data. No, here we're talking, we're addressing people that want to work with the data. They want to start to play with it. And not just for their own sake, but also to share that with others and um, and uh, share their enthusiasm um, with, with other people out there. Because all the products that are evolved throughout uh, Coding Da Vinci are, again, open source. So, um, if you have, if you see an application in then in on the 5th of July on the award presentation and you think, wow, that's interesting. I'd like that. I like that, um, application. Then you simply take it and you may uh, work on it and develop it in further or adapt it to your own institution, to your own needs, mm-hmm. add simply new data to it. I mean, that's, that's something it's like, um, Building the Tower of Babel without having God to smash it.
8: <laughs> I was just wondering if all data is already available on the internet because I really doubt that. <laughs> we have quite many institutions, I guess. Maybe you can tell something about it, a bit more in detail, um, where we know that some, you know, digitized collections are not even, you know. Um, um accessible. accessible or not online. even online, you know, so certain data you will never find on online maybe. Mm. So um, um, yeah.
6: Uh, there are degrees of accessibility because opening it up data is a very important first step and we help with that. We, we, we make, yeah, people lust for it. That's a great thing. And I think even the first, the first time participant, the first time, uh, uh cultural institution, they got a flash today of it. Uh, they, used to saw that glow. Wow. Wow. There's people that are interested to do something with our data, but I still think there are always, uh, technical implications and we have to. And legal, of course, legal, uh, legal, uh, legal stuff is always coming back to us, and and so uh, what Beata said was completely right. You can't blame the Croatian institutions. A lot of them are very willing, and we have to do something about it. The 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 uh, intellectual property right is a shame, and it's blocking so much innovation, and there has has to be done something about it. But being from a technical side myself, I will want to stress uh, there's. Even opening up the data is the first thing you have to make it interoperable, and so you have to make data work together, so that it can meander from from our uh, digital library to uh, Wikipedia, can be reused elsewhere, and 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 can be traced back in some sorts. All the evil stuff that the NSA and Facebook are doing with our our metadata as persons. Would be great to have for the artworks, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because you, you you have to to think about provenance. You 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 want to know who who, who what museum is this from? Why can't I look at the at the a digital file of of a picture? Why do I have to Google for it? Why don't can the uh, picture itself tell me I'm from 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 the Berlinische Galerie and and uh, yeah, just enter me, uh, uh, click me, and I, I'll transport you to a contact who knows a lot about it and and. These are some things that have been done with me. I think that's, that's something where that will happen in the next 10 years or so. And I'm very excited to, to be part of the start of it.
8: And also maybe just one add, uh, one thing to add. Um, because you've been talking a lot about, yeah, the cultural institutions are cooperating with the hacker community and the designers and so mm-hmm. on. But, um, I guess, well, what I experienced personally last year was that even, I mean, we have this, um, kickoff event, uh, and, uh, we invite all, uh, data contributors, um, to come and to present the data. And what we figured out was also that, um, some institutions have really, are working on really similar, um, data sets or thematic, you know, like, topic related data set somehow but they don't even know that so mm-hmm. we already experienced last year that um, some institutions really discovered here that the data sets are actually connected somehow and they that should they should work to de- together you know so that was actually yeah quite a good quite a good thought <laughs> yeah
0: I mean uh one of the other areas that I've I've gotten to ask directly to people from museums is this whole aspect of changing museums when it comes to funding. I mean uh I don't know how it's going in Germany you can tell me, but back where I'm living in the Netherlands, uh, it's all about the cuts, right? Doing more with less and 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 being sort of slowly but surely gutted in many cases. Um and It's interesting that while that's happening, or perhaps it's no coincidence, that um, programs like this come into existence, perhaps out of necessity, where people um, add value to content that already exists. And I'm not saying it's a solution, but it almost seems like a a social answer in many ways.
4: Well, actually, crowdsourcing is, of course, one one of the ideas cultural institutions have, or is one of the hooks... One of the carrots we show them. Um, but I think it's not only crowdsourcing in the way that the crowd mm-hmm. out there could add more data, could be tacking, um, the, the data or something. It's all, also a, a thing of making friends, um, making friends out, out, out there mm-hmm. because, um, cultural heritage is, uh, very often considered, um, among a broader public to be something rather boring. When, when I tell my boys at home, oh, well, let's go to a museum. I mean, you guess how they look at me. Uh, <laughs> being teenage boys, there are other things much more interesting. But when they, when I show them the applications that turn off um, from coding Da Vinci, they start getting interested in, into it. And they say, oh, this is where, where I'm moving around in the digital world. And there I meet now. In a kind of attractive way, that cultural heritage. My mom keeps on telling me that is important. Um, so they start being changing their attitude towards it, which, uh, of course, I, I, I like very much. But I think it's not only for for parents important, but it's also important important for the museums. But because those are the ones that are probably the visitors of tomorrow, but they're certainly the taxpayers of tomorrow. So they are the ones deciding how much of our funds are going to preserve all that cultural heritage, which is a massive uh, investment the society itself has to bring up. And if cultural heritage is not longer considered to be important, well, then why should we pay tax money for that? So uh, make sure that the our heritage is out there where the people are. This really helps, I believe, the institutions to maintain their importance as important members of our society.
7: So from my experience, the situation is in the museums and also in the libraries and the archives, because we have also libraries and archives around. So. Um, I would say there are starting to digitize their collections, but this is, we are not at the end. So it's not that everything is out there already. I would say in the, in the world of museums, maybe we have 1% digitized, maybe 2%, maybe 3%. And only a little percentage of these 1% or 2% is open. So, it, we have there is still a lot of work to do, to do mm. but also for those projects who have digitized their a small collection already you now the question is what to do with this and how to present this and in which context and for this coding da vinci is really a, a very a great forum a, a great platform to to talk to people and to find other ways other ways to present the collections, other ways to um, to tell stories which are part of the collections. So I think uh, you have to do both. You have to digit go on digitizing, but you also have to uh, think about new ways of presentations and new ways to connect the collections to the people.
6: Um, Yeah, that's always a learning curve I I experienced uh, or I I observed last year because um, initially all the participants are drawn to the shiny, the flashy objects. Yeah, there's something that makes sound, uh, a a a (laughs) twittering bird or or some some 3D objects. This year we had uh, one of the first uh, amateur uh, uh, films from uh, the last uh, turn of the century from 1903 and that's something that always draws attention because you can understand it immediately. And when they start working on stuff, they uh, gather the importance of metadata because that's the the stuff that links things together and tells you sto- uh, sto- uh, something about it, and it makes it accessible for for uh, yeah processing it with the computer and linking it to other stuff, and that's. And it's always interesting because, uh, you have this initial draw to the, 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 very central object. And then you got, you uh, uh, start to reflect and, uh, understand the importance of a project like the, uh, common, uh, authority file. That's a, a huge database of 10 million or 20 million, uh, um, uh records, uh, telling all about a person's lives, uh, that what, what, job they had, whether, when they were born, where they were born, and they, they, this connected with, with the number, with a an, an identifier, because, uh, in the olden times, uh, people, there was no unique way to write one's name, and so you have, our national hero is Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, and you find about 60 or 7 ways to write his name, his full name. He is a, uh, yeah, he was a, a nobleman, and there was of von Goethe, and you write him with him umlaut or not, and stuff like that, and, and, and if you try to match all these different uh, 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 ways of uh, way to to write his name. You you can't gather all the information about him so you need this this identifier and that's something that um, enters the people's minds as they keep working along and so that's a great educational experience also Mm -hmm. I think. And
7: this educational experience is not only for programmers but also for the cultural institutions. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can have the most wonderful digital objects in the internet, open for everybody, but we if you don't have the description, let's say the metadata, it's more or less nothing. <laughs> and um this uh we we saw this today in the hackathon already because some of the institution they presented wonderful images then somebody asked so can we connect the images to other images and then somebody said yes of course they are there but actually you can't connect an image to an image you need something, some glue Mm -hmm. you need some glue and this glue is a kind of metadata so if you don't describe this and at the moment you describe it as a person. You need person, you need people, you need people in the museums, you need people in the libraries and the archives. If you don't do that, you can't connect collections, you can't connect images, and also a programmer looks very <laughs> sad
0: <laughs>
7: sad and is frustrated in the end.
4: Yeah. Well, it turns away something. yeah.
0: That's why for years I've spent so much time on metadata. I didn't know why until now. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, Barbara, Helen, Beata, Stefan, thank you so much. Uh, It was a pleasure. Congratulations on what it is a wonderful event. Uh, We still have another day, I know, but I'm already declaring it a success. (laughs) I am the judge. And uh, until we uh, sit again and and look at how things are evolving in new ways, we'll meet again. In July.
7: In July, Jewish Museum, Berlin. Come
0: over. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Don't you just love a good Round table. I don't know. There's nothing like many voices taking turns, jumping in and, uh, and Hey, I, I get to be in the middle and ask questions. Uh, much. Thanks once again to my round table, uh, ...panelists, as well as to all the people you heard from in the first half of this show. Eight voices in total. That's what I call a cascade of voices. Talking about Coding Da Vinci, and you'll surely hear more. Follow uh, hashtag Coding DaVinci Vinci on Twitter to see what's going on as we head towards July... ...as our panelists just mentioned. Uh, and that about does it for today's edition of Source Code Berlin. I want to move to a quick plug... A call for papers. You may have heard about it in previous shows. I'll just remind you. Enthusiastic Con. June 19th to the 21st. What is it? It's a conference going on at Wikimedia in Germany, in Berlin. It's for the programming community and friends of the programming community. Two days, short presentations. Talk about what excites you about programming, strange things, wonderful things, clever solutions, unusual problems. Join us this June 19th to the 21st, and either present or listen or do both. Bring your joy, bring your love of this craft. Yeah, Call for Papers is up on sourcecode.berlin, which is incidentally where you can find all of our past shows on this fine podcast. All right, that does it for this edition of Source Code Berlin. Let's go through some of the vitals. Thanks to all those who have emailed or commented on the program via the website, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, you can also go to iTunes and leave a comment there. Source Code Berlin, it's a Wikimedia Deutschland podcast, and you can find us on Facebook, Source Code Berlin. You can find us on Twitter at SRC Code Berlin. Music on this podcast was by Lache Swing and Ergo FizMiz. You can find them both on the free music archive. This podcast is published under a CCBYSA 4.0 license and edited by me. Until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Thanks for listening. You're having a discussion
3: about what you're about to do. I'm acting that I have a discussion about.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're looking at pictures of stones, and somehow we'd like to have something physical. To yeah, about. so we
3: thought of going to Grunewald and collect some stones and find them because these are actually from around Berlin. Yes, so it should be possible. I mean, there are to two. There are options. To yeah, there are two options. Either we find something that is already in the database. Or we find something that is not in the database, and then it will be in the database.